This is Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. We share a more in-depth take on the most popular stories from our print magazine, showcasing the territory's extraordinary people, culture, and outdoors. I'm your host, Karen McCall. Do you have a Yukon North of Ordinary hoodie yet? What about a t-shirt, a toque, mug? Check out the full product line at the retail store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. Limited products can also be ordered from northofordinary.com. And while you're there, don't forget to pick up a magazine subscription. Mish Genet is the author of three books on northern cuisine. She also writes the long-running Boreal Chef column in Yukon, North of Ordinary, the magazine. For the past year, Mish has brought us on a culinary adventure, writing about bonfire food, birch syrup, bison, and wine. Mish doesn't just tell us what to buy and how long to cook things. She introduces us to the people and stories behind the ingredients. Today, Mish is taking us through a year in review, starting with her spring 2021 column about how to host and what to serve at a bonfire. Outdoor gatherings were and still are a key part of gathering safely during COVID-19. Yes, even in the winter. And since we're heading back into the cold season, I asked Mish to share some of the bonfire tips and treats she wrote about in her column. Okay, Uh, you're right. I think we are, since last year, we've really become a lot more interested in bonfires. We always have been a bonfire culture, I think, in the North. Um, and I think probably everybody's refined their their bonfire entertaining a little bit since last year. Um, but I would say some of the sort of cardinal rules as a guest um, are to come on time, dress warmly. Um, and the reason that I say those two things is that probably at a bonfire, you've got about 90 minutes in you. And probably in that time, you're not going to go inside, especially if, you know, we are under some more COVID restrictions. So you want to dress warmly and you want to come on time because you've only got 90 minutes. Right. And if the host is there and people are kind of showing up at odd times and they're going to be pretty cold after a bit of time. They are going to be pretty cold after. But, you know, on that note, we were invited to a bonfire last year around Christmas time. And the um, in order to stay safe, the host had invited people in stages. And so they were outside from five o'clock in the afternoon until 10 o'clock at night. While all of the rest of us came and went in, you know, hour-long increments. So, yeah, I think that they probably will revise that plan for this year. (laughs) Or they have lots of, like, heat warmers in their boots and their gloves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things, actually, I should have mentioned at the beginning of this interview is that one of the things I really like about your columns is that you write about food, but you write also, you're always introducing us to a new topic and you're doing a lot of research for it. So that's sort of where this bonfire thing came in, as you talked about food for bonfire, but also tips and um, and the relevancy of that, of course, being with COVID and we're doing more outdoor gatherings. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've, I've relatives who live in the uh, in Ontario and they, they were doing the same thing. They were buying heat lamps and um, deck fires that are gas, propane fueled. So it's, it's not just happening here. It's happening in lots of places across the country. Um, I would say as a host, you want to, um, and this is the food part, you want to make the food as easy as possible to eat with mitts on. Um, so uh, both as a host and as, and as a guest, I've really enjoyed soup. Soup in a mug with a spoon because you can manipulate a spoon 
fairly easily with a, in a big mitt. Um, anything handheld, like a, a pie wrapped in, um, in a paper napkin that you can then throw in the bonfire. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my, my current favorite food to bring to bonfires is um, sausage rolls. And I, I recently thought, so sausage rolls always need something. They need a little bit of chutney or a little bit of hot mustard or honey mustard. What if you spread that condiment, whatever it was, on the pastry before you rolled up the sausage roll? Ah. I haven't tried it. I'm sure somebody has because it's so brilliant. Um, so that's going to be my, my new innovation this mm-hmm. year. It's put, the, put the chutney or the mustard right in the, right in the roll. And I liked your uh, COVID tip as well for passing around a tray of these food items instead of having a table where people would be gathering quite close together. Yeah, that's a really, I think that's a really good COVID-y type strategy mm-hmm. just to avoid those, those tables with, you know, people breathing over condiments and stuff like that. <laughs> that yeah. uncle who's reaching across everybody to grab <laughs> That's right. <laughs> always uncles. They always get a bad rap. Uncles. Poor uncles. <laughs> you also mentioned uh, because uh, we're often doing a bit smaller gathering sizes and that uh, it's a nice opportunity for sort of people, shyer people or introverts who sometimes get lost in a crowd of people to, to be able to do more sharing at a smaller group. And also uh, you suggested people bring a story to a bonfire, something to share. Yeah, absolutely. I've I've been thinking about this quite a bit because I can tend to be one of those shyer people at a bonfire. And I'm not necessarily a person who has stories ready to tell. Um, and a number of, of shyer people are, are the same. They don't really necessary, necessarily know that they have a story. But in a small group around a bonfire, when the conversation meanders a little bit, um, suddenly something can occur to you and lo and behold, you do have a great story and everybody does want to hear it because there are only four of us or six of us and there's, there's time and space for that, uh, that unexpected or unknown to come to the fore. Mm-hmm. And I know as an extrovert who's always flapping off her mouth, when one of my shyer, more introverted friends does speak, it's, it's always more powerful because, I don't know, the, the fewer words are, have more intention That's or right. something. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> okay, so then uh, I guess moving forward with the seasons for the spring issue of Yukon North of Ordinary, you wrote about the seasons of uh, birch syrup. Super yes. interesting topic. Why did you get interested in that? Well, I've always loved um, the birch syrup that um, Berwyn Larson and Sylvia Frisch produce on their little stand of birch trees on the McQuestan River. I first met Berwyn in 2005. That's the first time I ever tasted birch syrup. He was selling it at what was then the agricultural fair, it, which eventually morphed into the fireweed market in, in the Yukon, in Whitehorse. So I love what they do. I love how they do it. And I love the product. I've always loved the product. So until 2016, they tended to, they, they, they blended all of the syrup from the full season into, um, into sort of one, one batch. And so the early season flavors and the late season flavors blended into one, one blend. And they also did some other offerings, uh, birch syrup and maple syrup together, and a birch syrup with sugar. Um, so that changed in 2016, when th- because they'd had uh, several years of experience, and they were learning how to, technically, they were becoming more proficient, learning how to control the boil, etc. So suddenly, we now have early 
mid and late season birch syrup. Right. Very different from each other. Let's get into that um, in a moment because I definitely want to hear more about that. But what did you also learn like about the process? Like if people think about how maple syrup is harvested, is it the kind of same thing where you tap a birch tree? and Essentially, yeah. You tap a birch tree uh, for the sap and then you reduce the sap through controlled boiling, controlled heat to syrup. And the classic uh, proportion that everybody loves to talk about with birch syrup is that it takes 80 liters of sap to make one liter of syrup, whereas for maple syrup, it's 40 to one. So wow. 40 liters of, of right. sap so to one liter of syrup. Twice as much effort maybe goes into the birch syrup. Yeah, certainly twice as much volume. And yeah, absolutely. That, that many, that much more just volume that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And fire and wood. Right? Yeah, right. Okay, because they're boi- like using wood boilers. They're using wood boilers. Wow, because yeah. it's all off-grid. This, it's all off-grid. Birch stand. Do they live out at the birch stand They as live well? there. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So live there, bo- educate boat their kids access. there. Uh, no, it's road access, oh, it but okay. it's, a, it's kind of, a, it's kind of a, an iffy road. So especially in the spring and fall, um, getting in and out can be tricky. Mm-hmm. And have you been there yourself? Yes, but I haven't been there for birch season. Mm. My um, husband and I have wanted to do, that, to do that for years, and we will do it. We just don't know when. But we did go and visit um, Sylvia and Berwin and their two kids in uh, the fall of 2014 for a North of Ordinary article, actually, just on them and their business and their their home and homeschooling Mm -hmm. and all that kind of thing. Yeah, super interesting lifestyle. So check out that article from 2014 (laughs) if you can find it. So uh, how, how does maple, or sorry, rather birch syrup, how does birch syrup taste? Is it similar to maple syrup? It's not similar to maple syrup. Actually, I heard a chef uh, describe it as if honey and molasses got married and have a kid, had a kid, it would be birch syrup. Okay. Which is actually pretty good. Mm. Um, so it's not really, it's not really like maple syrup at all. It's much more like molasses. Okay. Um, in, in, in that, that it, it has those deep compl- complex flavors that molasses has. Um, birch syrup doesn't quite uh, have the intensity that molasses does until you get to the late season. So early season, um, I suppose if you were going to say that it was like maple syrup, that would be the the, the, the version that would most be like maple syrup. It's a very, um, it still has that umami, but it's a very light kind of syrup, and it's it's great on its own for people who don't, who, who don't want to go the, the full gamut and get that really intense birch flavor. It's a really nice entry birch syrup. Um, so great on pancakes, um, in, uh, in sweets, sugar pie, uh, butter tarts, that kind of thing. Really good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And you, yeah, you had some specific, those were some of the recipes that you'd suggested yeah, I think, maybe. I think we used the early season, um, birch syrup for the butter tarts. And I think that's a really successful marriage. The tartness of the low bush cranberry and the, and the sweetness of the syrup. Oof. Really yummy, not too sweet, right? Like just not too sweet. Yum. Yeah, yeah. And then mid season. And sir, when does mid season? When does that sort of start? Well, it you know the whole season is really fast. It's only about a month. Wow. Okay. Um, Sylvia just has a wonderful way of describing what happens. So, um, in mid season, and I'm quoting Sylvia directly, Sylvia Frisch, um, the flavors build up, the colors deepen, and she's talking about the syrup here. So the the sap changes and therefore the syrup does too. The minerals 
are are dissolving more readily because the the ground temperature is is warming up a little bit. Um, so in the in the syrup, the mid season syrup, the flavors are building up. The color is deepening. The mineral deposits in the pans thicken. Um, the boil changes. This is all Sylvia. And as soon as they start to notice a strong birch flavor, so this is all happening in the early season, and then these are the changes that happen that bring it into mid-season. So as soon as they start to notice a strong birch flavor, they switch to mid-season. Right. So they keep all of that, all of the early season stuff separate, and they start working on mid-season. It's uh, it's kind of amazing what they are able to achieve in this um, homestead environment. Mm -hmm. It's really technical, but it's very simple technology. I imagine they're probably working around the clock, too, for (laughs) that month period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, them and a a gang of volunteers. Right. Yeah, yeah. So what is the the mid-season birch syrup? What's the the taste of that? Well, that's a little bit, it's a little bit stronger, and you really can taste the difference between the early and the mid. It's, um, I keep going on about the umami flavor, but that really is the, the thing about birch syrup, that it has this incredible savory quality, very complex. And so that complexity is just becoming a little bit more pronounced in mid-season. Um, and in um, in our North of Ordinary story, I suggested salmon candy. Mm. And uh, I think I, I think I both marinate the, the salmon in the birch syrup and brown sugar and then brush birch syrup on throughout the smoking process. And it's just, I don't know, it has little qual- qualities of soy sauce, mm-hmm. um, a little bit of uh, mushroomy flavor, almost. It's it's quite interesting. So that's that's happening in the mid season, mm-hmm. and then all of those aspects start to become more intense in the late season. Now the late season um, birch syrup again, Sylvia is just really interesting. She says that the, as soon as the buds start to show, a little bit of bitters, a bitterness comes into the into the sap from the top down. So, but so this is early spring then, or yeah. early summer? Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, um, early Yukon summer. Yeah. So, <laughs> summer starts in May in the north. Uh, yeah. In, in the north, yeah. Um, so it changes every year, but I would say probably late April, early May, but. Right. Okay. You know, it, it all depends on the season. It can be earlier than that. It can be a little bit later than that. But yeah, so buds are coming out. So if you if you think of that first tiny bit of green that mm-hmm. you begin to see on the trees, that's when um, in in the birch sap, that's when the bitterness starts to come in. And um, as soon as the smallest bit, this is Sylvia, as soon as the smallest bit of green shows, photosynthesis begins. So photosynthesis, as a reminder, is uh, is how the plant uses sunlight to synthesize food from um, carbon dioxide and water. And the food, it, it, well, it's energy, and it's energy as sugar. So the, the plant is making sugar. So that's what we're that's what we're eating when we when we eat birch syrup. Right. Um, so there, uh, so that bitterness develops kind of um, an acid tang. In the, in the syrup, and that's when they switch to late-season syrup. And then when the syrup curdles milk, that's when they stop um, making syrup for consumption as, okay. as syrup, and they switch to uh, concentrate for beer. Oh, interesting. Okay. Which they then drive all night down to Yukon Brewing, who turn it into um, a birch beer. Oh, I had that season. birch beer. It's yeah. a really good beer. Oh, my gosh. I kind of, I, I didn't. 
realize there was real birch in it, but of course there is. Yukon birch, that's really fascinating. Okay. Isn't that neat? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So obviously they're driving through the night because there's some sort of time sensitivity to that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that that whole uh, that whole aspect of the of the production is uh, something that um, kind of boggles my mind because they have to bottle the, and the the road at that time of year is really tricky. Mm-hmm. It's so muddy and wet, um, and year after year they get it done. Wow, cool. Yeah. And what what were the recipes you recommend for the um, the late season? For the late season, anything. Um, that uh, a marinade, any kind of marinade. I mean, the mid-season is good for a marinade too, but but the the birch is just a little bit more savory. The late season is a little bit more savory. So marinades, I add it to just about any braise that I make. Mm-hmm. I kind of automatically add two tablespoons of birch syrup to braised bison or or moose. Anything strong flavored, it just it rounds out the flavor and it adds again that deep umami complexity that uh, is just so wonderful. I remember when, when, when I was uh, proofing your story, I had to ask, what's umami? But I, that's, that's on me. That just shows my lack of um, culinary expertise. But you, you referenced that sort of savory Savory taste. Savory taste. Yeah, it's 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 kind of a it's hard, it's hard to pin down, but it's the the kind of um, deep flavor that you get from soy sauce, from mushrooms, mm-hmm. um, from uh, uh, any kind of caramelization of meat, you know, and it just adds that base note that yeah. really grounds a dish. It's kind of a metaphor, mm-hmm. but no, oh, it's a good explanation. Okay, so uh, for the summer issue of, well, I guess it's actually the fall issue of Yukon North of Ordinary, then you um, wrote about bison. Of course, bison hunting season starts in in the fall here, and uh, you looked into the Ajak bison herd, which has kind of an interesting history in the Yukon. Oh, it does. It does. Um, of course, the sort of the ancestors of, of wood bison are steppe bison, which apparently migrated into the Yukon, um, into North America 90,000 years ago. And they were like one of the large ungulates of, uh, of, you know, the thousands and thousands of years. Right. Before, during, and before and during Beringia. I mean, bison are big enough as it is. So <laughs> imagining like a giant one. It's oh like, my holy gosh. Cow. So these would have come over like back uh, during glaciation come out over the Bering Land Bridge. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's the that's the theory. So they mm-hmm. they once covered North America, and um, and they went extinct or they were extirpated in uh, in the Yukon, probably Central Yukon certainly um, around three hundred years ago, and Yukon wildlife senior wildlife biologist uh, Tom Jung um, says we don't know exactly why. But probably a combination of factors um, like habitat change, uh, uh, boreal forest encroaching on boreal grasslands, and um, possibly hunting, uh, a whole bunch of different factors. So they went extinct. It's a technical term. They didn't go extinct. They, they, they were gone from the Yukon um, around 300 years ago. And in the, um, in the 70s, and, 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 you know, of course, the, the story of the prairie bison is kind of a disaster. So in the 70s, there was a national effort to restore populations of wood bison in particular, but also plains bison. And the Yukon kind of um, uh, jumped onto that effort in uh, 1980, signed on to the, in, in 1980. 
And the goal in the Yukon was always to have a free-ranging herd as part of the national recovery effort, so not enclosed, not fenced in. Um, so in, uh, in 1985, 142 wood bison were introduced to an enclosure in the Nizzling River Valley, where the habitat was kind of assessed as the best for reintroducing the bison. And that Nizzling, that's sort of uh, north of uh, the Alaska Highway, like the Ejac area, is yes, that right? Yes, okay. that's right. Yeah, it's kind of... Kind east of, of Kluwani. East of Kluwani, yeah. Think of it like that. Kind of northeast. If you think of Ajac Lake, which is a long, long lake, and you think of Ajac Village, right, which is right at the northern tip of the lake, it's it's northwest uh, of there. Okay. Um, so 142 bison were introduced. That population grew over time to 170. And so eventually, between 1988 and 1992, um, uh, 170 animals were introduced, sorry, were, were released from the enclosure into the wild. And by 1998, it, that herd had grown to 500 animals. So it was pretty successful and, and quite quickly. Um, so as the, as the herd grew, um, so did... Uh, um, meetings between humans and bisons, and there are several First, First Nations, Kalani First Nation, Champagne and Ajac First Nation, Little Sam and Carmack's First Nation, whose traditional territories and s- settlement lands are within the range of the Ajac herd. And, you know, they're large animals, and they hadn't been seen in, in 300 years. So suddenly, these um, First Nations... People who had live who live very closely are tied to the landscape. Landscape and, and everything is everything, as we know. The land is everything. We're living with these large animals, mm-hmm. and they are intimidating animals. They are intimidating <laughs> animals. You've seen them on the on the highway mm-hmm. near Layard, yeah. So, as Tom Young was saying, part of the effort in recent years, last fifteen years, has been to work collaboratively so that conflicts between humans and bison are, are reduced and mitigated. And um, there is the management plan that was written in 2012 was very much a collaborative effort between those three First Nations that I've just mentioned, renewable resource councils, federal and territorial departments of the environment. Um, and it was, uh, it, the implementation of the plan continues to be collaborative. And there is one of the, one of the goals in the plan is to um, is conservation public knowledge and to keep conflicts down to a minimum, and also to exclude bison from sites of cultural significance. Mm. People found that bison were coming into, for example, traditional berry picking patches and pooping and wrecking the berries. So. Those kinds of mitigation efforts are, are happening all the time. Um, there is a, a Yukon Wood Bison technical team that uh, is, is co-chaired at the moment, I believe, by Linnea Workman, who is a, a Champagne and Ajac First Nations member, and uh, Tom, Tom Jung. There's a lot of uh, research, collaboration, constant checking in. So it's a, it's a very different story than it was in the beginning. When the bison were reintroduced, the umbrella final agreement hadn't yet been signed. It was composed, but it wasn't signed until 1993. And uh, Champagne and Ajac First Nation signed their final agreement in 1993, and it came into effect in 95. 
So management, co-management schemes weren't really in place yet when the bison were reintroduced. But I, I would say that everybody acted pretty quickly to, to mitigate any ill effects. And of course now, and actually, well, for I think since the 90s, there's been also uh, regulated hunting of bison. Um, so I think actually the last season was, I think, the highest number of bison that was taken. I think it was 270-odd That's right. bison. Right. Yeah, out of a, f- a herd of uh, 1,200 to 1,400 odd. Right. Yeah. I think and yeah. I, they have, there's a maximum number of, of bison that are allowed to be taken. I don't think the limit was reached, but it was close. It was close. Yeah. yeah, it was. And um, the hunt uh, began in, in 1998 right. um, because as, partly as a, a management scheme mm-hmm. to keep the population down. Right. And it continues to be part of the manu- management scheme. Um, and it's interesting, Tom, uh, Tom Jung has said that as far as he's concerned, uh, the hunt helps to keep the bison wild. And when, when the bison were first reintroduced, when the hunt first began, they were kind of an easy target because they were used to humans. They all came from, or many of them came from Elk Island um, National Park and also from zoos and private facilities. So they were used to humans, but they have, be- they have grown wary and wise. And, uh, and now they, as a friend of mine said, they run a mile as soon as they hear a two-stroke engine. They're a lot harder and a lot har- harder to catch and a lot more elusive. Um, but uh, the other thing that Tom uh, Young said that really surprised me was that we're global stewards of the of the largest free-range bison herd in the world, wood bison herd in the world. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty Very incredible. Cool. Yeah. And also, I'm imagining, likewise, not many places in the world where people can hunt bison, too. So to be able to fill a freezer with, with that meat is, is pretty rare. Pretty rare, yeah. And you don't hunt, I, I understand, but you often are gift or you're traded trading for bison. Yeah, I'm very lucky in, uh, in that I've got uh, a, a few hunters um, who, who are friends who are hunters and who were successful last year, three different friends. Mm. So we were gifted bison meat from three different hunters, Great. which is kind of wonderful, yeah, mm. which enabled a whole lot of experimenting, of yeah. course. Yeah, yeah. so what, what do you like to, or what did you discover to cook with bison? Well, um, bison kofta, uh, which is a, a Turkish dish um, of ground meat on a stick with you know a beautiful spicy sauce, um, bison short ribs, uh, which I love. I have a bison roast still in the in the freezer from from last year that I'm hanging on to because I, I I might be lucky and have some family up to visit this year. I'm not sure, so I really want to save that bison roast for them. But I, I would do a pot roast, a long, slow-cooked pot roast, mm. either with kind of berries and wine um, or with uh, tomatoes and oregano and, you know, kind of an Italian treatment. But, I, you know, with bison, as with moose, I really like long, slow-cooking braises, unless, unless it's a steak, and then I like really hot and fast cooking. Okay. Yeah, with a berry wine reduction afterwards. Oh, right. The berry wine. That's a, 
Berry, berry wine. That's a good. Actually, that's a great segue. segue. Into, yeah, the the article for our November issue. So yeah. for our, yeah, for our most recent issue, you wrote about uh, Yukon wines. Um, so and for that, you spoke to uh, Kyle Marchek from Yukon Berry Farms. I understand, and he makes um, Hascap products. Hascap is a berry that has become sort of more well known in the Yukon, but maybe you can describe it for people who aren't familiar with the Hascap berry. Yeah, absolutely. The Hascap is interesting. It is uh, indigenous to different circumpolar countries, not ours, but um, it is a berry that's grown in Siberia and that grows naturally in Siberia and in Japan. And in the wild, uh, it can tend to be the species that grow in the wild can tend to be quite medicinal tasting. They don't taste all that great. So many, many years ago, uh, the University of uh, Saskatchewan started a program because Haskap is so successful in a cold climate, started a program to develop a, a hybrid that would be tasty as, as a berry and in things like jams and, and pies, etc. And uh, there's actually a really strong Yukon connection to that program. John Leonard, who has Klondike Valley Nursery in, uh, on, in an island, on an island in the Klondike River, has worked with the university for years and years um, developing different berries. Mm. And, uh, and so there are some, the Yukon has been a significant contributor to the development of different kinds of berry, different kinds of hascap that taste really good and who, that don't fall off the bush too soon and whose skins aren't too thick. There, there were a number of kind of um, issues with the hascap to, to, to overcome. So now, you know, fast forward many years ahead, we have great hascaps. Um, available to us in Canada, and and I was just going to say, they're sort of are they described as a kind of a combination of a blueberry and Saskatoon? If people were to kind of visualize them, yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that between a something between a, a blueberry and a Saskatoon, the sweetness of a blueberry, the thicker skin of a Saskatoon, and they're also quite elongated. They're mm -hmm. very interesting kind visually. Of a funny shape. Yeah. yeah, they're like a lozenge, a little <laughs> lozenge almost. Yeah. Um, and they're very juicy, so they're great for anything that requires a lot of juicy. Um, um, what else can I say about the flavor? It's very rich. It's a rich berry flavor. So uh, sweeter and, and sort of more berry-like than our wild blueberry, for example. So it's a great berry. It's a great berry for the north, and it's easily grown. Uh, so, of course, Yukon Berry, berry Farm farms have um, something like 40,000 bushes. They have, I think, a, a like a U-pick where people can go pick some berries, but then they've also, you said, recently gotten into uh, winemaking. They've gotten into winemaking, and, and I gather from Kyle Marchak um, that it is the most successful product just in terms of uh, production, um, price point, and um, ease of of distribution, the most successful product that they have come up with so far, better than berry berry jam, um, better than the raw the raw berry frozen, it's really working for them. So they've they've um, they I think they produced their first wine in 2020 in the midst of COVID, uh, kind of miraculous. Um, so they've got three three different uh, still wines, uh, an apple wine which is 
something that they they just got into because they were interested in apple wines and um, and two hascap wines, a sweet, a semi-sweet, and a dry, and then some black currant, a black currant frizzante, and a hascap frizzante because they're also growing black currants out oh, okay. on their farms. Yeah, so they've got these five products as well as a sister company, Solstice Cider Works. Um, under which, under whose banner they they make, I think four mm. different ciders. Yeah, it is. It is nice to go to the uh, liquor store and see a. You know, we've got lo- like so many Yukon beers now, which is fantastic. But see a Yukon wine, it's really nice when people are visiting or as a gift or just for a special occasion. Absolutely. And yeah. I understand that you've done some cooking with these wines. Well, I did. Well, the, one of the first things that I did was, was consult with um, with Lara Daly who owns and runs Cultured Fine Cheese, because I figured she, wine and cheese, natural complement, and she, of anybody, would know what would really work. And so she did a whole bunch of tasting and experimentation and, and came up with a number of cheeses that work really well with each of the wines that, uh, that um, Yukon Wines produces. Um, so that was really fun, and she designed a fondue right. to go with the apple wine, which... Um, I brought home and made and found superb. Right. So good. Oh, my gosh. Perfect. Okay. What were the kinds of cheeses she suggested for that again? She had different cheeses for, for each one. So for with the uh, the, the semi-sweet Haskap wine, she said that they were hard-pressed to find a cheese that it didn't pair with. Oh, wow. So she suggested varieties like Gruyere and Comté, um, mild to medium intensity blues, triple creams, and aged cheddars. Um, she suggests that the aged Carisdale from Klondike Valley Creamery would be a really good match with the semi-sweet Haskap wine. And for the um, dry Haskap wine, she suggested aged sheep milk varieties, mild goudas, um, and for the semi-sweet apple wine, she said, it's a kind of a Chardonnay-style wine. It's made with Okanagan apples. Fondue. Mm. Absolutely fondue. So that's what yes. we did. And so that was really fun. And then there's, there was a cake that uh, I fell in love with a few years ago when I first tasted coronation grapes, and I wanted to know what I could make with coronation grapes. They're a grape that has a vestigial seed, and they're produced in B.C. In, for a very short period. They come out in the fall. Um, and so I did some research and discovered this great cake by Patricia Wells, who's a Canadian who's moved to France. Um, and it's, uh, it's a cake that she suggests, she learned it from an Italian friend of hers who has a wine estate in Tuscany. In her recipe, there is, she calls for a third of a cup of milk. And I thought, what if you substituted semi-sweet Haskap wine for the milk and made it with hascaps instead of blueberries. Wow. I mean, sorry, instead of grapes. And it works beautifully. Wow. Now you're yeah. talking. Substituting wine for milk. <laughs> or milk for wine. <laughs> yeah. So that's a really nice. And I think the semi-sweet hascap wine would be, is really nice for any kind of dessert um, application. And it's, uh, it's a good accompaniment to, to desserts or cheeses. Front end of the meal or the back end. Mm-hmm. I think it's very versatile. And then finally, uh, the dry Haskap wine, you know, immediately I started to think of a long braise, berries. So I came up with a a recipe that um, paired beef short ribs, but it could be bison short ribs, um, with wine and Haskap. 
and all the usual suspects, a little bit of tomato paste, some birch syrup, of course, um, and came up <laughs> with this gorgeous kind of deep, rich, luscious braise. Mm. Yeah. It's getting on lunchtime now, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so where can people find more of your uh, recipes if they want to kind of check out some of this stuff? They could go to my website, uh, borealgourmet.com. And I'm in North of Ordinary every three months, of course. And I write uh, cooking columns for, for other, other publications um, that uh, people can just Google and, and find me. And I, I believe I'm, I'm, uh, sometimes I'm Mich Genet, sometimes I'm Michelle Genet. So either one of those two names will get, get you somewhere. And did you say you're working on a new book as well? I am working on a new book, but it's not a cookbook. Oh, okay. It's um, it's a memoir. Right. Set okay. in Greece. Oh, um, wow. I lived in Fantastic. Greece for a few I, years. I'm sure food will play and have an element in the story in some way. Food <laughs> plays quite a role in that story. Yes. Right. When's that? When do you think you'll have that ready for? Oh gosh, I'm working on the second draft right now as we speak. Oh, so a couple years along. anyway. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, enlightening us about all these uh, food-related topics and interesting, um, interesting topics. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me. It's, it's great. I love talking about the Yukon and food and, and northern adventures, all that great stuff. That's it for this episode of Yukon North of Ordinary, the podcast. Subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our print magazine by going to northofordinary.com. While you're there, check out Yukon North of Ordinary merchandise. For a full product line, visit the Bricks and Mortar store in Whitehorse, located on the corner of 2nd Avenue and Steel Street across from City Hall. There's a great selection of hats, stickers, clothing. I love my hoodie. Do you have something you'd like to say about this episode? We'd love to hear from you. Find us on Facebook, North of Ordinary Media, Twitter, at Yukon Magazine. You can also email me, editor at northofordinary.com. And just a reminder, I'm Karen McCall. Thanks to the whole team at North of Ordinary Media. Special thanks to art director Manu Kegenhoff. Our music is by Head Candy and tribeofnoise.com. Thanks for listening. We'll have another episode coming out next week. I hope you listen in.